Hello everybody and thank you for downloading this episode, this first episode, episode one of the Kino Quickies podcast. Kino Quickies is not just a podcast though because it's based on a series of live screenings of 1930s quota quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square in London. Can you see how we arrived at the name Kino Quickies? It's all very clever stuff. After each screening, we have a discussion and a Q&A on stage, which are hosted by me. My name's Dominic Delaghi, and our resident expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London. And we have a specially invited expert guest for each film too. The whole thing is then packaged up with a bit of showbiz magic and is released as a podcast a couple of days later. Details about dates and times of screenings and about all of the films and about our special guests will be in the show notes for each episode, which you can find at kinoquickies.com. If you're not entirely sure what a quota quickie is, never fear, because Lawrence, our in-house quickie expert, explains this in the Q&A, which is coming up in a few minutes. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love to see you at the live events in future where you'll be able to join in the conversations in person. And I realise that's not a particularly helpful suggestion for people who live a long way from London. But don't feel left out. You too can join in via Twitter on at KinoQuickies or at facebook.com forward slash KinoQuickies or you can email us at KinoQuickies at gmail.com. At the time of recording... The first film in the series was screened a couple of days ago on March 13th, 2022 at the Kino, and it was The Ghost Camera from 1933. Our special guest for the Q&A was the film critic and historian Pam Hutchinson, who is an expert on silent and early sound film, and also, it turns out, an expert on Ida Lupino, who's one of the two stars of the film. Starring alongside Ida Lupino, who was born and grew up just a stone's throw from the Kino, by the way, is Henry Kendall, who, in my humble opinion, is a comic genius. And the fact that most people these days are more likely to have heard of George Formby than the criminally neglected Henry Kendall is a national scandal. I shall write to the Times. And co-starring in The Ghost Camera is a very young John Mills, who is appearing here in only his second film. The film was directed by Bernard Vorhaus, who was as inventive as he was prolific in this quickie era, and the editor was a 25-year-old David Lean, who went on to become one of the great British directors. But that's enough waffle from me. Let's head over now to the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square to hear pretty much the same waffle from me in a less coherent form. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Hello, Lawrence. Welcome to the Kino in Bermondsey. Uh, just to let you know a little bit about this, this is a season of six Quota Quickie films with Q&A with excellent guests. The first one today is the ghost camera, uh, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. I mean, I feel like I'm preaching <laughs> to the converted here, and uh, there's lots of academics in here, but Ghost Camera is directed by Bernard Vorhaus, stars Henry Kendall, who is, in my opinion, a comic genius, Ida Lupino, who's a local girl, she was born in Herne Hill, and is edited by David Lean, who's a, a national treasure, like John Mills, who co-stars in it, so we're going to watch the film. You're going to enjoy it. I, I, can, I, I can guarantee that. <laughs> and then, um, then you go away, get a drink, which Paul, the manager of the venue, would like you to do because uh, it's a big part of the income stream. <laughs> and then we'll come back and have a little, uh, little Q&A. And with myself, my name is Dominic Delaghi, and there's Lawrence Napper, Dr. Lawrence Napper from King's College London. He's our, he's our resident expert. And then Pam Hutchinson, who's over there. Uh, Pam is a... Uh, Critic, writer, historian, programmer, 
all those things. And you specialize in silent film and early, yeah. early sound? <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, a bit modern. And, and Lawrence's speciality is, would, I, would it be right to say that it's pre-war popular entertainment? Yeah, that's, that's good enough, isn't it? And heretics, good. <laughs> We've got, I've probably got some here tonight. Um, so um, I think that's it. Are you all ready to go, Paul? Yeah. Um, I'm going to hand my microphone back to Robin and uh, see if the film. Thank you very much. And while the audience at the keynote sits back to enjoy the ghost camera, we must come away and lead them to it for a while. But to give you a taste of what they're seeing, let me fill you in. In the opening moments of the film, even before the names of our two stars, Ida Lupino and Henry Kendall, appear on the screen, we see the ruins of a castle high up on a hill. A car appears, travelling towards us along a road at the foot of the ruins. Suddenly, out of nowhere, an object falls from somewhere up high, we presume from the castle, and lands on the back seat of the car as it zooms by. The driver is oblivious and drives on. After the short credit sequence, we meet that driver. It is John Gray, a pharmacist played by Henry Kendall, who pulls up outside his shop in London to be met by his assistant, Albert Sims, played by Victor Stanley. John is a, a maudlin sort of fellow. Mm -hmm. Ah, well, here you are. Well, well. Hello, Governor. Hello, Sims. How's everything going? Oh, lovely. The shop's doing lovely. <laughs> oh, Mrs. Harris, yes, She's had stomachache all the week. Good. <laughs> well, how's things with you? Had a good holiday? Oh, just the usual eating, bathing and sleeping. I really don't know why I continue to go on holidays, Sims. They're never adventurous. Just the inevitable sort of people and happenings. Unexciting, like myself. Man is an irrational animal, Sims. Persisting to hope for what his reason has proven is non-existent. And... Oh. Trouble with your holidays, Governor is you don't choose the hectic places. Now, when I was in Blackpool... Yes, I know, I know. You told me that before. I always said you ought to marry that girl, you know. Here, let me take her. No, that's all right, Governor. Here, you take the camera. Camera? I didn't take a camera with me. Well, you brought one back with you, any road. The hotel people must have put this in the car erroneously. Oh, it's a good one, too. Pentac 29. Hmm. I wonder who the owner is. He must be missing this pretty badly. So, the mysterious object that fell from the sky was this expensive camera. Sims suggests that they develop the film to try to ascertain the camera's ownership. So John, although initially reluctant to pry into somebody else's holiday snaps, agrees to develop just one exposure. As he starts to do this, the doorbell rings and Sims goes down to answer it. But there's nobody there. What John discovers as the negative comes out of the developing solution is not a holiday snap at all, but a picture of what appears to be somebody being murdered, stabbed. At this crucial point, the doorbell rings for a second time. Again, there's nobody there. So John and Sims go off in different directions down the street, looking for the prankster. But back in John's upstairs room, a mysterious stranger lets himself in through the window and stalks about. The doorbell was clearly a diversion. The stranger picks up the camera and the exposed negative and tries to exit back out through the sash window but gets into difficulty and resorts to hiding the camera behind a curtain before making good his escape. Upon his return to the room, John realises the negative is missing and not just the negative. Why, well, how very extraordinary. The camera's gone too. Oh, come off it. You must have put it down somewhere else. 
That window, Sims. I distinctly remember closing it and pulling down the blind. Somebody's been in here during our absence. Well, I'll be... That bell. Do you think that was a ruse to try and get us out of the room? Well, a bloke could hardly go to that much trouble to steal a camera. It wasn't only the camera, Sims. The negative. I'm confident that was a photograph of a murder. Murder? Blimey. Definitely. One man stabbing another. Under the circumstances, I feel fully justified in developing the remaining negatives. Now for it, here's adventure with a vengeance. Alas, no further evidence of the crime is revealed in the remaining negatives, but a potential clue to the identity of the camera's owner does turn up. A photo of an attractive young woman standing in the doorway of a house, and thanks to the presence of a convenient street sign, they deduce that the address of the house is 17 Mill Street. John resolves to find the woman in the picture. He just needs to find the correct Mill Street first. Well? Oh, uh... Good afternoon. Uh, can you tell me if this young lady li lives here? There ain't no young lady lives here except me. Oh, uh, but, but this is number 17 Mill Street, isn't it? I suppose it is, but there are other Mill Streets in London beside this. There's one in Islington. Oh, oh is there? Oh, well, thank you very much. I I'll try that. After trying all the Mill Streets in London, John is about to give up, when, lo and behold, we have ourselves a meet-cute moment. Eureka! I beg your pardon? Oh, uh, forgive me for manifesting a certain excitement at um, having run you to earth at last. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you see, I've, um, I've been searching all over London for you. Really? You have, have you? It's a pity I've never had the pleasure of meeting you before. Uh, quite, but you see, I, I've got um, I've got some um, uh, photographs here I'd, I'd like to show you. Now listen, if you try selling me any of those things, I'll shout for the police. This is London, not Paris. Why? Well, that's me. Yes. How did you get it? Well, that's what I wanted to explain. You see, I found a camera lying in the back of my car, and the only way to trace the rightful owner was by developing the films. Oh, I see. After gaining the young woman's trust, this is May Elton, played by Ida Lupino, John is invited indoors, and May tells John the camera must be the one that belongs to her brother, Ernest, and begins to explain how her picture ended up on the camera. In flashback to a couple of days earlier, we meet Ernest, played by John Mills, who's getting ready to go out. He seems a bit shifty when asked where he's going, but claims to be going out for a walk in the countryside to take some snaps for a competition at his club. As soon as he leaves, though, May realises he's left his camera behind and calls him back. Why? Oh, Ernest, wait! Hey, have you gone back? How are you going to win a competition without a camera? Bit woolly today, aren't you? Yes, thanks. You know, I often wonder why they let an absent-minded man like you work in a jeweler's shop. You know, one day you'll put the cat in the safe and throw the diamonds out in the yard. Oh, shut up about the jeweler's shop, will you? All right, keep your hair on. What's the matter? Sorry, but I... I hate talking shop on my afternoons off. Hmm. All right, dear. Goodbye. Good luck with the snacks, and don't be back home late. Thanks. Here, wait a moment. I'll take you with the other sides. All right. Hold it. Still, watch for the diggy birds. Ernest takes the picture of May that has led John to her, and we return to the present moment. May explains that Ernest was expected home after his day in the countryside, but has not returned. Amelia, the cognitively challenged maid, played by Davina Craig, enters the room. Excuse me, baby. Oh, come in, Amelia. There's a man to see Mr. Ernest. A man? Well, what does he want? Oh, I don't know. Well, what does he look like? Well, he's got brown shoes and a net. Oh, he's quite a gentleman. Oh, well, tell him I'll be out, Amelia. All right. Will you excuse me a moment? Oh, yes, yes, certainly. The young lady says as what is how she'll see you. All right. Take your hat off. 
I said you was a gent. May goes out to talk to the visitor and is alarmed to find out that he is a police officer. And we discover the reason for Ernest's earlier discomfort at the mention of his employer, the jewellery shop, as there's been a robbery there. And it appears Ernest is in the frame. There's also a suggestion that May, perhaps, knows something about the robbery. Now look here, Miss Elton. I'm afraid you're not being frank with me. I'd better tell you now there's strong evidence that your brother was implicated in this affair. And if you and he... Oh, but that's impossible. When the diamond was stolen, he was... How did you know it was a diamond? So, now we have a robbery as well as a potential murder, and Ernest is the main suspect for both. When May returns to John, she withholds the details of her conversation with the detective, so John knows nothing about the robbery. He, however, is set on getting to the bottom of the mystery of the camera. Well, I found out it's the Mirfield branch line. Now, there's a road running close along the railway line, so if we hop into my car, we'll have no difficulty in finding the spot. Now, your brother couldn't have walked more than 10 or 15 miles. Uh, no, really, I couldn't put you to so much trouble. Oh, it's no trouble, I assure you. <laughs> well, uh, he might turn up tonight. I'll wait. All right, all right, you wait here, but I shall definitely go. Now that I've started on what the Americans so happily term the uh, detective racket, <laughs> uh, I, uh, nothing will prevent my tracking the criminal to his lair. Goodbye. But May decides to come along with John, and based on clues found in the remaining pictures, one of a pub called the Red Lion Inn and one of a train, they drive out to a place called Mirfield, supposedly in Surrey, to see what they can find out. Through some clever deduction, they find the spooky Red Lion Inn, and on May's instigation, they separate to investigate individually. May will go and talk to the landlord, while John will question the owner of the draper's shop opposite. All the while we get the impression that May knows something we don't and is hiding something from John. I'm sorry I cannot help you, but you see, we was closed on Saturday. The old man's funeral, you know. Oh, I see. Grand funeral it was, too. Four carriages. Oh, splendid. And I mean, I'm so sorry. Goodbye. And the town band. Any luck? Uh, no, the landlord said he didn't see anyone. Oh, Lord, we seem to have come to a deadlock, don't we? I don't know which way to turn. I don't think there's much use our going on any further. I think we'd better turn back. No, no, I will not acknowledge defeat. They decide to stay overnight in Mirfield, and luckily, the taciturn landlord of the Red Lion has room at the inn. Despite some potential awkwardness, when the landlord assumes they're married, John and May eventually end up with adjoining rooms. In the depths of the night, May is asleep when a sinister figure climbs in through the window and approaches her bed. She awakes and screams, frightening the intruder away. The scream wakes John, who searches her room to reassure her. You know, I really think I ought to be getting oh, back. Oh, no, no, no. I'm so scared. Uh, please don't go back, because I shan't go to sleep again tonight. I don't want to be left alone. But I, I can't stay here. No. It would be most unconventional. Oh, oh, please. Well, you can't go. No. Yes, but, um, but think of your reputation. Oh, hang my reputation. But I couldn't have another scare like that, honestly. I couldn't. Oh, there, there. It was just a figment of your imagination. Uh, probably the aftermath of a nightmare. No, it wasn't. Oh, do stay. Well, I... Oh, very well. Of course, it's very selfish of me. It must be terribly tiring for you. Oh, no. Oh, no, it's not in the least tiring. On the contrary, I find it excessively stimulating. The following morning after breakfast, John inadvertently learns from the landlord that Ernest had been at the inn the previous weekend, after all, and it dawns on him that May has kept that information from him. Now suspicious of her motives, he keeps a particular eye on her as they head across fields to investigate Norman Arches, the ruins that we saw at the start of the film. 
As they cross over a stile, May spots a white handkerchief on the ground, embroidered with E for Ernest. John spots May spotting the handkerchief, and when she makes a grab for it, he challenges her. Excuse me, but what have you got in your hand? Nothing. Well, I'm, I'm very sorry to have to do this, but I saw you pick something up. Please forgive me. Please. Please. She stuffs the hanky into her blouse. Well, that was very unfair of you. Why unfair? Well, you're, you're taking advantage of your sex to put me in a very embarrassing position. Well, it's lost, isn't it? Very well, then. Even at the risk of violating your modesty, I shall, I shall have to get it myself. You wouldn't. Wouldn't I? You see, I happen to know. Know what? Well, that you... You lied to me about what the innkeeper said. He did see your brother. May spills the beans and explains that she'd been trying to protect her brother, perhaps helping him to evade the long arm of the law. John is sympathetic and says it's imperative that they continue their investigation and tells her, for the first time, that he thinks he saw a murder taking place in one of the pictures. Now reconciled, they head to Norman Arches, played by Corfe Castle, where they make a grisly discovery. The corpse of a murdered man lying in the darkness. The authorities are alerted and news spreads throughout the land by telephone and wireless broadcasts. Murder is suspected by the local police in connection with the discovery of a body in the ruins known as Norman Arches, a few miles from Mirfield, Surrey. The deceased has been identified as Bill Symes, a notorious criminal well known to the police and believed to have been implicated in the recent jewel robbery at a well-known firm of West End jewellers. The police are anxious to interview Ernest Elton in connection with this matter. And anyone who can give information as to his whereabouts is requested to communicate with Scotland Yard... Ernest is now a hunted man and is eventually cornered and captured. The scene shifts to a courtroom. Ernest is led in. He looks tired and is dizzy and disorientated. John and May are there looking most concerned. We soon realise that some witnesses have already given their testimony and it's not looking good for Ernest, who is clearly lying. Ernest Elton, in view of the weight of the testimony against your own, I most solemnly ask you if you wish to modify your previous statements, that you have no knowledge of the robbery or of the deceased and were never in the vicinity of the latter. No, sir. I have nothing to change. Despite the fact that under cross-examination your sister, May Elton, admitted that subsequent to the robbery at your employers, you showed marked nervousness at any mention of your activities there? No, sir. I haven't anything to change. And despite the fact that the domestic servant at the house where you reside, Amelia Wilkinson, testified that you left home on Saturday last with a camera in your possession? No, sir. No, I didn't take a camera. And despite the testimony of John Gray, that certain photographs alleged to have been taken by you led directly to the discovery of the body? No, sir, they weren't my photographs. And despite the statement of Barnaby Rudd, the innkeeper, that he directed you to the ruins where the deceased was found? No, I tell you, I was never there. And despite the finding of your handkerchief within half a mile of the body? Eventually, Ernest cracks and blurts out the obvious truth. Yes, yes, I was there. Ernest, stop! Don't be a fool. Stop! I object to the court's remark. So, how on earth will Ernest get out of this? Can he get out of this? Should he get out of this? All the evidence points to him being both a jewel thief and a murderer. The conclusion to the story will be at the very end of the podcast, so you will have an opportunity to press stop if you don't want to hear spoilers. But for now, though, over at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey, the film has finished. 
Those who wish to refresh their glasses have done so. So it's time to head back there to hear from our experts and see what our audience thought about the ghost camera. For the noggin. Very good for the noggin. So, thank you, naughty boys at the back of the class. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Uh, just quickly, with nods, nods of heads or shakes of heads, did we like it? Yeah. Mostly nods. That's good, isn't it? Excellent. Well, we got. Um, we do have a, a roving mic which we'll hand round. So I'm we'll get a couple of questions. We'll talk to Pam. Get a, Pam's um, view on the film, and then we'll either come to you after that or just shout out. But don't actually insert your comment until you've got the mic in your hand because it's been recorded for the podcast which comes out on Wednesday and um, if you don't have the mic in your hand then we won't hear you. Pam, hello. thank you for coming all the way from Worthing <laughs> it's my to pleasure. see the film. Uh, you've seen it before haven't you? Yeah I did, I did see it when um, Lawrence first suggested this project to me. And you, did, you, did you say you think it's better when you got the flu? <laughs> <laughs> well Lawrence contacted me when I had the flu and so I thought well I can now watch this film just to check it out, see what he's roping me into. And there is something quite trippy about this movie. Uh, a lot of subjective camera work will explain that, but I think also the looping plot and very strange nature of the comedy. Um, I have to say, it's even better to watch it with an audience than it is with the flu. <laughs> <laughs> because you guys were amazing. <laughs> um, Ida Lupino, she's a local lass yeah. to these parts. And she, she did going to be quite a, you know, a significant figure in Hollywood. What can you tell us about her? I can tell you so much about Ida Lupino. So Ida Lupino is from Herne Hill, so she is quite local. If you could tell that from her accent, she's actually meant to be playing Cockney here, but it, only when she got really excited did you see a, have a trace of that, I think. I was looking at what was happening with Ida Lupino right now, and this was a really pivotal moment for her when she made this film because she was trying to get out of the British film industry as fast as possible, basically. So she's had her breakthrough, aged 14, in a film called Her First Affair, a film that her mother had screen tested for. And then she'd been making um, these, these British films. She'd just made a film with the same director of this called Money for Speed, which was all about racing. And she'd been hit by a car and landed face first on some gravel. So she'd been wrapped up in bandages. She'd already been scouted by Paramount and she didn't know whether she'd ruined her face. And she didn't know whether it was really a good time to go to Hollywood because they wanted her to play the lead role in Alice in Wonderland. And Isa Lupino said she'd never been young, really. She was, uh, she was a naughty girl on screen, and I think that was her persona to herself off screen. So it was while she was making this film that she finally decided, whether it's Alice or not, I'm getting out of here. So um, that's not to disparage her performance in this film, which is amazing. And obviously, part of, you can see onto greater things. She's one of the many film directors involved in this movie because she went off to Hollywood and she played all these hard-boiled dames and then eventually she got sick of that, so sick of it, and she started making her own films. So she made things like The Bigamist and The Hitchhiker. So her presence here, she must have been looking at the quote-a-quickie method of making films and thinking it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably do this. I'm 15. <laughs> that was my little run-through of where I think Ida Lupino was in 1933. <laughs> uh, and Lawrence, we have a eminent audience in this afternoon eminent audience who there, and they will all know what about, about quota quickies but could you explain a little bit about because it's the first episode of the podcast could you explain how quota quickies came about and what they were and and how much the film normally cost right in those so, days yeah i mean quota quickies come about basically as a kind of result of a crisis of filmmaking in britain in the 1920s where effectively 
Britain's in competition with Hollywood. Hollywood is much more f efficient. Hollywood has a much bigger home audience. So the potential for box office is massive for an American audience, whereas, you know, Britain is at a disadvantage there because if you're, you know, if you're showing films across Britain, even if it's super successful, you're not going to make that much money. And partly as a result of that imbalance, basically Hollywood exports films to Britain. At, it's very easy for Hollywood to dominate the British market. So if you're in Britain in the 1920s and in the early 1930s, really pretty much all of the films that are available for you to see are American. And that, like, the government's super anxious about that because it means, you know, because they want to support British film because it is an industry that employs people. That's one reason. Another reason, I don't, kind of nothing's changed really, it's understood to be a kind of shop window, a showcase for um, British products, British ideas, Britain itself as a kind of tourist destination, all these things are kind of, you know, reasons why the government wants to support British films. So they, they, they actually put in legislation in 1928 to protect British cinema. And that legislation, there's lots of debates about what mechanics they're going to use. But what they come up with is this idea that there should be a quota of British films put on British screens. So every cinema has to screen a certain percentage of British films and every distributor has to have a certain percentage of British films on its books. And basically, obviously, most of the distributors are American distributors and they're distributing American films and they've got not really that much interest in supporting British cinema. Like, what do they care? That this is the competition. <laughs> um, and so uh, American distributors pay uh, British producers very small amounts of money to make their quota. So that's what a quota quickie is. Technically, a quota quickie is a film that's being made for an American distributor as cheaply and as quickly as possible, just so that that American distributor can say, yes, you know, 5% at the beginning, 10 or 20% later on in the life of the act, of the films that we're offering are British films, but like they're not the kind of films that you might want to choose over our American films, Mr. Cinema Manager. So like, let's not forget that. But they're technically on their books, so they they're technically so, on the so books, so the they boxes. they comply with the law. And how much did they cost to make? And how did that compare to the uh, <laughs> standard? It's not in here. It's not in there. <laughs> Luella, you in the house? Can you give us a price for an average oh, quota quickie? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a, a ledger in the Board of Trade Papers at the National Archives, which is unfortunately does not include the ghost camera, but it's for the quota year from first uh, of April 1932 to end of March 1933, and it includes ten films made by Real Art Productions and produced by Julian Hagen. And most of those have an estimated cost of between five thousand and six thousand pounds. And most of them are similar sort of thing. They're short features, you know, around about sixty, sixty-five yeah. minutes. Yeah. So that, that's a kind of ballpark figure in that um, in that ledger. Yeah. Uh, there's some films which have produced significantly lower cost uh, than than films like this. <laughs> It's a bargain, though, isn't it? <laughs> the figure that they quite often throw around is a pound a foot. That was a sort yeah. of legendary figure. And that, I think the five or six thousand pounds is around about a pound a foot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's really great about Quota Quiz, of course, is they're only ever 60 minutes long. Yeah. Because <laughs> the law stipulated that a feature film was 60 minutes. Like, they're, they're, nobody had any interest in making a longer film because that just meant spending more money. Yeah. <laughs> Famously, quota quickies were terrible. The idea is they were, and I think I read that only 5% of them still exist. 
So, if, how representative of the quote of is Ghost Camera? Because I, <laughs> I think this is a great film. And it depends what you mean by terrible, doesn't it, you see? Yeah. I mean, I've seen some terrible ones. I mean, you could but say, well, what is, what is a good film? What makes a good film? I mean, one of the good things about this film is that it, it's got great performances mm. in. It's got lots of quite self-conscious comedy. It's quite playful. But, I mean, there are other things you can say, which is it's really badly paced. <laughs> there are points in the film where you're thinking, oh, Jesus, like, how are they ever going to get out of this tedious scene? Like, <laughs> how are they going to clean this thing up in, like, within the 20 minutes they've got left? And, of course, there are, like, moments where it's just like, anyway, so we're, like, bored with telling you the story now. We're just actually just going to, you know, have somebody announce it on the radio, what happens yeah. next. <laughs> so on that level, it's terrible. But, I mean, lots of other quota creases are other sort of quota creases that are different, and actually there will be some in the season. So one of the things that's really great about some of the quota creases is they, you know, it's complicated writing a whodunit, really. Much easier to, to create a film about you know, some people who just would like to put on a show or are going to murder somebody in the BBC. And then you've got, a, you've got a showcase for a whole range of BBC acts or music hall acts that you just record. And, you know, that's a pleasure in itself. So, you know, a cineast might say, well, that's a terrible film. But actually what you get is a record of a whole range of, you know, popular cultural performances from the period. Yeah. And I do get the impression that people cared in, in making this film. You know, Bernard Vorhaus, a director, you know, he put some effort into it. You know, he went on location and yeah. the, what what's this, what's the phrase used about the camera? Subjective camera. Subjective camera, yeah. Impressive yeah, camera work. Impressive camera work. And I think I I do not know as much about um quota quickies as Lawrence obviously, but I I knew going into this that it would be a quota quickie. First thing you see is location shooting and I was like, big tick. This cineast <laughs> was impressed. <laughs> you know, and there's there's lots that they're trying to do. They're try, you know, they don't need to do so much editing and they don't need to do so much, you know, point of view camera work and they don't need to play around with it so much. I think that Bernard Vorhaus made some great claims for this film. He said it was the first film in British film history that treated working class people as leading characters and with dignity. <laughs> that old myth. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how you heard that. You obviously heard it as some kind of controversial <laughs> statement. British cinema, as he patiently explains in his biography, until then had entirely been Noel Coward type plays with <laughs> upper class characters in living rooms. <laughs> yeah, so it, you know, but it's sort of it's actually quite fun that he wanted to talk about it with any kind of enthusiasm because his career didn't go on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> didn't go anywhere after this. Well, really, he went, to, went back to Hollywood. So he's American, went back to Hollywood, but he was a raging red and um, he was quite scared of the blacklist. So he came back to London and became a property developer, which is all, what all communists do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm telling this wrong. I, mean, I don't know this. <laughs> but, you know, he was really proud of some things. He was proud of having a little bit of action before the titles and things like that. So there was obviously an attempt to say, we've got eight days, we've got the studio, let's just do what we can. We've got the English Gene Harlow, a.k.a. the 15-year-old Idolipino. Yes, that's, that's, that's troublesome, isn't it, her being 15? She was troublesome. Oh, no, yeah, it is troublesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did I say a hand up a minute ago? Oh, hang on for the microphone. Sorry, um, it was just because you were talking about, you asked about the budgets for the films, but you didn't say what the American, the equivalent Hollywood budget would be, which is the other half of the answer that I Good would like. question. <laughs> I've got a rough idea about this. Around about the same time, Cary Grant got, I think he got £90,000 for a three-film deal in the same year, or maybe the year after Ghost Camera came out. So that's one actor 
you know, what's that? Being paid six times the whole budget of one film, so. And they weren't massive blockbuster films either, they were just like standard Hollywood films. Yeah. So quite a big difference, yeah. Yeah, I think even a even a sort of quality British production in this period would be around £100,000, something like that. Does, and that. does that make sense to you? I'm looking at you, James. Oh, hang on, James. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, James. Sorry, so 1933, um, Private Life of Henry VIII, £93,000 thereabouts. Mm. And Perfect Understanding, which was the most expensive film in the quota year, 1932-33, which is a United Artists um, film with Gloria Swanson producing at ah. Ealing Studios, was about 120-something thousand pounds. But they were, in the early 30s, they were fairly exceptional. Yeah. Later on, the, the budgets went up. Um, but for, for something like um, British international pictures they were producing an average of about £15,000. So even their, you know, average films, which are seen as being the lower budget, some of the lower budget for the British majors, were still rather higher than the American companies were sponsoring. And is it right to say what I read was that these close quickies would be done in eight days? Which sounds like not very much. And then I read that the studios were working on day shifts and night shifts. I've got a quote about that. (laughs) Oh, hello. I shall read to you. Um, John Mills uh, talking about, you know know what I mean? John Mills talking about the making of the ghost camera. Because it's only his second film. I think he was 23 when he made it. He said, I can't see, it's too dark. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) He says, the atmosphere when I walked in on the set at eight o'clock on that first morning was almost indescribable. The night shift staggered out at 7.30 a.m., leaving in their wake an aroma, a delicate blend of cigarette butts, orange peel, stale beer, makeup, and several unmentionable gases. (laughs) The schedule for a picture was eight days. They never went over. So they worked in split shifts, 12-hour shifts. 12-hour shifts. You can see that in quite a lot of those Julius Hagen films. Yeah. Mm. Actually, the sets are the same. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's a bit like Hammer, you know, back in the day. But that there are two or three films um, where, like that set of the pub, you'll see that happen again and again. Mm. Um, and it's the night shift and the day shift working on the same set. There's this story about Julius Hagen, who's the producer of this film. You know, if you were if you were behind by a day, he would just walk onto the set and he would tear six pages out of the script and be like, "Okay, you know, continue." <laughs> and and I think you can sort of see that in the film. Yeah. You know, yeah. this idea that the script is sort of like not this perfectly honed object; it's something that just gets rewritten and rewritten like overnight to accommodate the the speed with which they have to film stuff. And did they have kind of in-house people who? Wrote the scripts, did the lighting, and yeah. okay. So they didn't have a, a lot of freelancers come in and just not well, not Hagen. Like this particular studio, which is the one I suppose it's been quite heavily researched. Really, it's the one that's had the most research done on it. There is a real, you know, repertory company. There's the same people doing the scripts, same people doing the set design, same people doing the incidental music, and the same actors a lot of the time. So like Davina Craig that you see mm. in the the Ghost Camera, who plays the dopey maid, oh. who's she's a kind the of best. spectacular, the star the of the film. Yeah, she's, she's great. Yeah. <laughs> And she plays that dopey maid in a whole range of <laughs> Julius Hagen <laughs> quote to quickies. Box set when? Yeah. <laughs> well, if I, I, I would audio commentary that. Got brown shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, seeing as Julius Hagen's name has turned up a lot in this conversation, did he make serious money out of this? Or was he only making yeah, yeah, he quota quickie loaded. money? 
he was quite loaded, wasn't he? He didn't he eat dinner at the Savoy Grill every night. He ate. Oh, that's a good story. He it? ate dinner <laughs> at the Savoy Grill every night. Bernard Vorhaus describes like going into Julius Hagen's office, which was you know the St Margaret Arms in Twickenham, which is basically <laughs> the pub. <laughs> Um, and he, and he, I mean, he was certainly, you know, he flashed it about, but in fact, quite quickly, he went bankrupt. So in 19, he gets this idea that he's going to produce, like, more mm. pucker films, and he makes some films that are more expensive, a bit more expensive. And, like, you know, all of the critics and all, the, all of the audiences are like, yeah, this is just a quota quickie, really. <laughs> it's a load of old crap. And the distributors were like, yeah, we're just going to distribute this like a quota quickie, so you won't get the same amount of money back. And, in fact... He goes bankrupt in around about 1935. Betty, ba thank you, Betty Balfour. <laughs> One of the big films he makes stars Betty Balfour. He fails to pay her. And like everybody fails to pay everybody. And at the end, they're all like, hey, whatever. But Betty is like, no, no, I want my money. I'm suing you. And he goes bankrupt as a result of that. And he dies the following year. So he, Aww. and I think, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want Do to libel the, the guy. <laughs> but he's, time, yeah. he's 54 or something. I think he was probably an alcoholic. Yeah. I, mean, I think that sort of, you know, I, that world, you'd have to be pretty... I was going to say something nice about Julius <laughs> Hagen. No, no, yeah, oh, no, I was, no, I was going to say that somebody said something nice about him. Because I was thinking this was... I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching the film. So, you know, John Mills says that it stank. The atmosphere stank, right? But Kendall said the atmosphere at Twickenham was wonderful, darling, and none of us minded working from, you know, we said nine in the morning till two, nine in the morning till two the next morning for, you know, lovely Julius Hagen. And of course, well, maybe that's because he's the star, maybe that's just his line. You'll know more, much more about that gentleman <laughs> than I do. But I was thinking you can see when you're watching this that Harry Kendall's just enjoying doing a lot of comic improvising. He's been told... I'm acting for a bit and I'm just going to riff on it, you know? And it made me think, like, we always, in my mind, we always compare the quota quickies to, like, B pictures in Hollywood, like Poverty Row, but it's a bit like the kind of Max and it slapsticks in that you just have a situation. And I think that guy would have been funny whatever the script was, mm. you know? He was just, he was entertaining me. And I thought, well, you know, I'm glad someone was having a nice time. <laughs> he plays the same character in The Shadow as well, pretty it much. Does, he pretty just similar. does the same thing, doesn't he? Which I is a funny shtick. I think there's a real sense of it. You're right, actually. I mean, Uncle Julius, they called him, apparently. So they obviously felt quite affectionate towards him, even though he was a terrible, naughty person who didn't pay them that much. But there's also this sense of, like, within certain restrictions, they had quite a lot of freedom. I mean, so, like, Bernard Vorhaus, mm. as Pam said, you know, he wasn't anything special. He didn't do anything special later on. He was, a, like, a young man who was, like, keen to make films, and he got the opportunity to make films. Like, mm. And that was quite, you know... That, the quota quickie system allowed people who didn't have much experience to step up and make films and like cut their teeth. Yeah. So there's a sense in which, on the one hand, it's a sort of, it's a it's a runway. It's lots of directors started. David Lean starts in the quota quickie industry and kind of become famous, learn their trade and become famous. But also, it's a landing strip. So you, what, the other thing you get is quite a lot of silent film directors ending their careers in the quota quickie. Okay. Because like Vorhaus said later when he wasn't making films, he said he regretted it. He said, whatever the situation, making films is better than not making films. And you, you know he meant it because he worked for Uncle Julius. <laughs> um, I remember when we were talking about this a few weeks ago, Lawrence, you said, and I can't, I've tried to find, we, we said it on a text or WhatsApp or an email, something about some naughty story about Henry Kendall and a journey to Brighton. So, yes. 
This story was told to me by Charles Barr. Oh, right, OK. Guest in film six in the series. film six. And, I th- and Charles, who taught me about Greta Kiesi, and I noticed you were laughing when the titles came up and it was like Coiffure by Charles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Charles saying to me, well, of course, Lawrence, you'll always know it's a Greta Kiesi if the Coiffure is by Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but he told this story, and I can't remember if it is... John Mills, who is the star in this film, or Stuart Granger, uh, early in his career. But basically, Henry Kendall invited this young star for a weekend at Brighton. Mm-hmm. He was going to motor, they were going to motor down to Brighton and spend an exciting weekend. <laughs> and, you know, there they were in the car motoring down to Brighton. And it became evident to Henry Kendall that this young male, beautiful male star, didn't really understand what a weekend in Brighton (laughs) meant. (laughs) And he very graciously, and actually it's the star, I think, who tells the story, very graciously pulled into a lay-by and carefully explained to him what a weekend in Brighton meant. In a (laughs) lay-by. And with no hard feelings, he then drove him to the nearest train station so that he'd get the train back up to London. Oh, bless him. And avoid the fate of a weekend in Brighton. <laughs> it was Stuart Granger. Okay, yeah. thank you. Who, who tells similar stories much more aggressively about Deborah Carr jumping on him? So you know. Ah, uh, well, Stuart. Obviously so obviously, had a Kendall. Of himself. K- Kendall clearly was more of a gentleman. <laughs> so I think they did a really good um, showing that I, I, Ida Lupino was only fifteen. I, I was actually shocked by that, but there was a part in the film where it showed she was fifteen. There's a shot. And I don't know what they did with the camera. They I took the rose tinted glasses off or something. But there was a part where the reality of her youth, the, the screen changed. It was a shot. What, what was that? What, what, what made that? You don't know? You don't know? It was particularly close up, was it? It was a film. There was a, the, the film sort of, yes, as if it had a cover over it. And I don't know if they did the... It was like a filter yeah. somehow a filter, came yeah, off. Yeah, the filter came off as if th- there's a part. And, I, and it wasn't until I, you said it was 15, I thought... I'm like, that was the part. That's, why, yeah. That's where I see she was 15. Because mm-hmm. at no other part that I, I, I thought she was 15. She, she's amazing talent for that age. I mean, incredible. She's incredibly she poised. Herself. I thought it was about 23, easy. And, um, it's, yeah. and it's a bit vague because really if she's 15, she shouldn't be living there with her brother all alone with the maid and, look, and doing no. the housework for him. I'm not yeah. sure. So, yeah, it's a, it's, they obviously, she's obviously not playing 15. I mean, people <laughs> at that time did have a lot more gravitas about them sort of thing. I mean, I, one of the reasons I like this film because it takes me... Ti- I love a tiny bit of time travel. So it takes me back to 1933, the, the, you know, the whole terminology, the, the words, uh, the whole lot. It just is, is, I've oh. really thoroughly enjoyed it. That bit where he comes out of the door and there's like a, there's a vending <gasps> machine for... O- is it oval? Yeah, yeah. Ovaltine chocolate, yeah. And you're just like, okay, here I am in 1933. I'm immediately like, transported with my gran and granddad. That's their life. I'm watching it on the screen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I actually see my gran one of those sort of bits at the end. Really. I'm like, oh, that's my gran there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, she lived around that area. So, you know, you know, who knows? Might have gone long. But yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Very good. Welcome. Any more comments before we... Just yeah. a very, very quick question. And not about film studies. How do you listen to a radio in a boat in 1933? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very long cable. It's all about yeah, the valves. They would have a battery, but it would be huge. It yeah. would be a huge battery and a huge radio. Of Another boat. So unwieldy. But you need to keep up with the news everywhere you go. Like We've all got our phones with us now. It's the same thing. <laughs> I suspect those bits were all stock shots, actually. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. you know, they yeah. clearly didn't film those scenes. So. Yeah. 
But they did film the Mill Street montage, which is beautiful. It's brilliant. Be- brilliant comedy. So, you know, we, we can be thankful for what they did do. <laughs> right, I think, we're, I think we're done. It's just nearly half three. So if, if there's nothing else from anybody, we'll uh, thank you, Pam, for coming all the way from Worthing. Well, at least it wasn't Brighton. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lawrence, New Cross is also quite a long way as well. That's, that's great that <coughs> yeah, you came from, 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 from New Cross. <laughs> no. Thank you for coming, everybody. Coming two weeks' time, it's going to be... Um, what is it going to be? Death at Broadcasting House. Death at Broadcasting is, uh, House. And the Brilliant. guest is Josephine Botting from the BFI. That's, that's going to be a good one. A huge yeah. thanks once again to Pam Hutchinson for coming up to London to take part. And thanks also to the audience, who were great. Tell your friends and come again. Our thanks also go to Paul Carstairs and his team at the Kino Cinema for all their help and support. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our resident quota quickie expert and co-host is Dr Lawrence Knapper. Twiddling the knobs on this occasion was Robin Warren, a.k.a. Robin the Fog. There's a link to some of Robin's work and to all sorts of other bits and pieces in the show notes for this episode at kinoquickies.com. But now... Back to the exciting conclusion of The Ghost Camera, which contains a twist that I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have seen coming. Remember, this section will be totally spoilerific, so if you don't want to hear the ending, please feel free to press stop now, and I look forward to seeing you at a future screening of Kino Quickies. Okay. Okay, so hopefully there are no spoiler-phobic people still listening. So, when we left Ernest, he just admitted that he was indeed at Norman Arches, where the act of murder took place, and now he gives us his explanation. Now, I'll tell you. I want to. I can't bear this any longer. I did help to steal the diamond. I told him the combination. Then I was sorry. I wanted to get it back. I went to the ruins. I knew they were meeting there. I knew no one would believe me unless I could show who did it. Something besides my word. I took my camera, I set it up. In flashback, we see Ernest back at Norman Arches. He sets the camera up to capture the two thieves and the handover of the diamond, but it doesn't go according to plan. With Ernest hidden in the shadows, the two men begin to argue, then fight. And what the camera captures is not the moment the exchange is made, but the moment when one ruffian stabs the other. Ernest is discovered and the unknown murderer now comes after him. As they tussle, Ernest manages to fling the camera out of the window, wriggle free and escape. Back in the courtroom, despite this testimony, and even though both John and Sims testify again that they saw the picture of the murder, the judge is not convinced, and neither, unfortunately, is the jury. Members of the jury, have you arrived at a verdict? We have. What is your verdict? Willful murder against Ernest Elder. There's only one way to prove Ernest's innocence. They have to find that picture. Back in his room above the pharmacy, John begins a partial reconstruction of the night the camera and negative were stolen. And then... Good evening. Sorry to trouble you so late, sir, but I'm a police officer. Oh. And I've got a warrant to search this house. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad you've come. Uh, Come in, will you? Because I've just been essaying the role of detective myself. John shows the police officer, the same officer who questioned May earlier, around the room, pointing out where he'd left the camera on the night it was stolen. Discovering a scrap of material snagged on a nail outside the window, the officer postulates that the thief had got caught up trying to escape and may have hidden the camera somewhere in the room. 
They search for the camera, and suddenly... Why, here it is. By Jove, you've done it. Why, this clears up everything. I wonder if the film... Here, don't touch that, sir. The police will want to test it for fingerprints. Oh, yes, of course. What a load off my mind. But how on earth did you come to work it all out so quickly? Oh, uh, just following the usual routine, sir. We get used to it. Yes, but tell me, how did you get the idea so quickly? I mean about the, um, the, the, the sash falling. Oh, I uh, tried it while you were out looking for the magnifying glass. Oh. It was loose. But, 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 but that, that window was mended yesterday. Oh, we have our method, sir. Just a minute, please. I'm sorry, but I'm afraid I shall have to ask you to show me your, your, your search warrant. Get out of the way, young fella. Don't be a damn fool. I'm going to hurry back to the yard. Let me see that warrant. All right. Ah, here it is. The warrant is not a warrant, it's a fist. And this police officer is clearly nothing of the sort. A violent struggle ensues in which the room is well and truly trashed. The villain draws a gun and fires. John collapses on the ground, but he's faking. He manages to overpower the baddie and wrests the gun from his hand. He has prevailed. Do you know you've, uh, you've broken my glasses? Some weeks pass during which Ernest is exonerated and we now see him struggling to make his way through an adoring crowd with the help of a couple of policemen. Taking advantage of the distraction caused by this scrum, John and May are sneaking out the back window down a ladder. They've all become celebrities, thanks to the case, and the two of them are attempting to slip away. The chap from the wireless brings us up to date. Started in a sudden denouement to what has come to be known as the ghost camera case. What hitherto has baffled the police has now been elucidated by the murderer's confession, in which he states that he saw the number plate on Mr. Gray's car, into which the camera had been thrown, as it was passing the scene of the crime, and so was enabled to trace the camera to Mr. Gray's address. With the discovery of the stolen jewel in the camera, all charges against Ernest Elton have been dropped. We are happy to say that this rather grim case is to end on a note of romance. And that note of romance is, of course, that John and May have become engaged. And so, sitting in John's car, surrounded by the excited crowd, police officers and the press pack, John and May kiss. The end.